they'll say, well, sure, you know, we love our customers. Who's going to argue with that? Customer experience is important. Who's going to argue with that? But then when your chief marketing officer or your head of product or your chief customer uh, officer or whoever it might be says, great, well, I know you love the customer. Oh, yes, we love the customer. Great. I need $25 million to improve the website, create a new app, create a chatbot to provide our customers better service. Then they get an answer like, well, you know, we do love the customer. We really do. But that's a lot of money. What can you do for $300,000 to show the customer we love them? You know? Hello, my name is Lauren D'Souza, and you're listening to Retain, the Customer Retention Podcast. More and more companies are wanting to focus on retaining customers. But what exactly are the powers of customer retention? And how are companies using it to keep their customers coming back for more? That's what we're here to find out. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Howard Tursky. Howard loves to help some of the world's largest brands navigate digital transformation to reinvent their customer journeys and earn the love of today's digital customers. Howard speaks regularly on customer experience at conferences, and he is also the CEO of From, the digital transformation agency. Howard has recently released the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. Howard, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Pleased to be here. I'm really excited about our conversation today. As I was doing my research before our episode, I was learning more about your agency, what you do, and I'm super excited to jump into our conversation today. So thank you so much for taking the time as well. Of course. But maybe we'll start out by learning about your background and maybe what drew you to customer service and experience. Well, I got into this work because I was initially working in theater, film and television. That was where I did my graduate studies and kind of where my passion was. And around that same time, probably long before you were born, digital media <laughs> was being born. And this was even before the internet. And we were doing things like CD-ROMs and kiosks and such. And I became very interested in that. I loved storytelling, technology, working with a combination of creative people and technical people. And so that became something that drew me in. And uh, then before long, uh, the internet was upon us. And those of us that had been working in creating interactive media before the internet when it was kind of a niche thing, all of a sudden found ourselves in a good situation because now there was this thing that was blowing up that needed some of the skills that we've been working on for a number of years, a little bit you know, off to the side and unnoticed. So I found myself at the time, I, I was running a design department for Ernst Young, which is a big uh, consulting firm amongst other things. And so uh, they reached the point where their clients were starting to say, hey, we want to talk about this thing called the internet. And they looked around the company and be like, who knows about things like graphics, you know, and creating interactive experience. And they're like, that guy does, because I'd been working on stuff like that for Ernst Young's own marketing and stuff like that. So the next thing I know, I was being brought in as an expert to Fortune 500 boardrooms to talk about the internet and why would a company even want a website? Aren't they only for universities and the military? You know, that kind of thing again. <laughs> Long time ago, right? Sounds crazy now. <laughs> So I got to work on sort of the first websites for some big companies and just began what's been really the last, it's shocking to say, but the last 25 years or so of just continuously working with large brands on one fundamental question, which is how can we use digital to improve business? And what you quickly realize is the number one way is use digital to create a better experience for the customer, because when you do that, that's usually one of the main ways to improve business. So that's what I've been doing all along. And I did that for many years. With Ernst Young Consulting, which was at one point acquired by Capgemini and other big consulting firms, so I got acquired along with you know tens of thousands of other people, and to be part of Capgemini, and I was there for a few more years, and then I went out and started my own company. What an interesting journey that you've had so far, and 
leads me perfectly to ask because I want to know all about From. I want to know everything about it. But when you say that you set out to start your own business, tell me more about what kind of business From is. Maybe we can start there for those listening if they may have not heard of From before. Sure. Well, we're a digital consulting firm and digital agency, and we work with large brands, helping them, number one, figure out where they should go next, what changes to their technology, and most importantly, their customer experience will be most beneficial to them at this point in time. Then we help with the implementation of that, which can mean doing things like developing websites, mobile apps, chatbots, you know, applying artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever it may be. By way of example, we work with Avis Budget Group. We do most of their websites and mobile apps around car rental reservation and what happens when you pick up the car and all these types of things, and really trying to understand how can we make a better car rental experience. Or also car-related, we work with AAA, and we designed their roadside app to try to create a better experience for if your car breaks down on the side of the road, how can we create a great digital experience for the process that you need to go through to request assistance, understand when assistance is going to arrive, tell them where to bring your car, where you want to tow it, you know, and other related activities. We work with big banks like JP Morgan Chase. We work with companies like Airbus, creating new e-commerce platforms for them, for example, to help them sell satellite imagery from their constellation of high-resolution satellites. We work with ADP on their payroll products. So if a small business uses Run, which is their most popular product, which a lot of small businesses use to pay their employees every couple of weeks, they brought us in to do customer research to understand how they could redesign that product to make it even better, and then to do the redesign of that product. And so now the current live version of the most popular product from ADP, which is the number one payroll company in the US, that reflects the work that we did together with them, of course, to figure out how to innovate and update that you know tremendously popular app for the current moment in time. What's really interesting about that is that even the past three examples that you gave me, which was Avis Budget, ADP, and Airbus, was the fact that they're all completely different industries, but you're Nonetheless, the main point of what you're trying to get at here is about the customer experience, how you're revamping that for these businesses or working with them to do something like that. And I think it's a true testament to the fact that every single business out there, it's really about the customer experience and how you need to focus on that in the overall strategy. So in terms of the customer experience, how do you help them take a look or a deeper focus onto integrating customer experience into their strategy? Because I feel that a lot of companies, it's hard for them to actually switch to being customer experience focus if they hadn't done that before, or they're trying to digitally transform or something like that. So maybe you could tell me a little bit more about how you focus on integrating the customer experience into those strategies. Yeah, sure. Happy to. And and I go into this in great detail in the book, Winning Digital Customers that you just mentioned, which is really a roadmap of tons and tons of techniques for how to do that. But um, you know, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, is persuading companies that they should focus on being more customer-centric. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. But you know, the most fundamental, I think, is just a philosophical shift. Most companies, whether they realize it or not, are customer behavior centric, which is to say that most of the people making the bottom line decisions at a company really care about primarily the financials of the company, revenue, profit, growth, share price. And that makes sense. That's how CEOs are measured. And of course, CEOs report to shareholders, at least in the case of public companies. And that's what shareholders care about, increasing the value of the company. So that's the setup in kind of our you know modern capitalist world of how businesses operate. But the truth is that you may think that you care mostly about revenue and profit, but what drives revenue and profit? And the reality is that you know a lot of things, but the majority of what drives revenue and profit for a company and growth is customer behavior. If you can get your customers to do the things you want them to do, to buy more often, to buy 
bigger products to upsell, to tell their friends, to post positively on social media, then you're probably running a great business. You know, that will cover a lot of flaws that you might have in other areas of your business. <laughs> and if you don't have that, if you aren't able to persuade your customers to buy your product and continue to do business with you, then you can have the world's greatest ERP system and you can have like a fantastic legal department and great supply chain. But, you know, you're probably on your way out of business because this is the lifeblood of any business. So, it's not too hard to convince businesses that they have to be focused on customer behavior. And then the question is, well, okay, if we sort of have that moment of realization, if it's not already obvious that customer behavior is critically important, what is the thing that drives customer behavior? And it's pretty easy to lay out, and I go into this in some detail in the book, but it's experience that mostly drives behavior. Maybe there was a time, you know, if you watch Mad Men or a show like that, you know, maybe there was a time when customer behavior was driven by advertising, for example, you would just tell your customer about your product and then they would go do what you wanted them to do. If so, that was like before my time. Maybe that was true or maybe that's just a fantasy. But in any case, it's not true now. Most customers are very cynical about anything companies say about themselves. So true, actually. Yeah. Are you like that? Honestly, yes, just because how much you get advertised to and how much I see ads, especially on Instagram, it all seems like gimmicks. So I almost never believe it, if I'm being honest, but I really have to go and do my research if I'm going to take the time to figure out if they're legit or not. Right. And when you go to do your research to figure out whether they're legit or not, what is persuasive to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I need evidence of some sort. I need reviews. Reviews are a very powerful thing for myself, depending on what I'm buying, especially when I'm on things like Etsy, for example, like the marketplace where you can buy all these wonderful different mm -hmm. things. Reviews drive mm -hmm. literally everything I decide to do. And so even just the overall experience of the site when I'm on the website is important for me because I feel like that's a good indicator, right. even though that might not make any sense. But to me as a consumer, that's kind of how I feel about it. <laughs> well, no, that makes 100% sense and is completely consistent with the research that we do all the time. So what we like to say is there's really only two things that consumers believe today. One is their own experience. And, you know, of course, if you've already been to that bowling alley or used that accountant or bought that breakfast cereal, then naturally that experience that you had is key to whether you want to buy it again, right? If you bought the breakfast cereal and it tasted terrible, it probably doesn't matter what the ad says. You know, <laughs> you're like, I don't <laughs> like that. And if you haven't been a customer yet, then the thing that you said is key. Your experience of their sales and marketing or whatever they have out there, their, your experience with their social media, your experience with their website, that is an, very often an indicator of what you expect from their product or service if you agree to pay for it. And there's very often that perception that if the website isn't technically savvy, that the product won't be. If the website isn't friendly, the product won't be, et cetera. And that may or may not be true. It's certainly conceivable that some company makes a great product and they have a terrible marketing department and the website is terrible, but the product is great. That's certainly possible, but that's not what people expect. When they have a positive experience with some aspect of their digital channels, when they're they're investigating the possibility of doing business, then that is persuasive because that's the experience. It's not you saying our products are easy to use. It's giving them an experience of learning about the products that is easy to use. What we always say is, you know, show, don't tell. Or if you do tell, you can say it's easy to use, but the truth is don't expect your telling has as much of an impact. United always tells us they're the friendly skies, but you know, Southwest shows us that they're the friendly skies. And so if you ask most people to name a friendly airline, most people will say Southwest, they might say JetBlue, or they might say Virgin Atlantic. Usually they won't say United. Not that United is unfriendly. They're just average, I would say. But the fact that they constantly tell us that they're so friendly 
kind of goes in one ear and out the other. What is remembered is your experience. It's like, what aren't you telling us if you're always saying that you're friendly 24-7? That's kind of the thought that my friends and I have whenever we're searching for stuff. Like, if they consistently market that word, like being friendly, or we're like, where's the asterisk on this all? <laughs> there's that cynicism, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and then if you think about it, I said there's two things people believe, and one is their own experience. And so what is the other one? The other thing that people believe is other people's experiences. And how do you learn about other people's experiences? It's just as you said earlier, usually it's from online reviews, but it can be from you know word of mouth, your friends, what people post on social media. And of course, it has to feel genuine. You know, the testimonial quote on the website that Nike puts, quote, you know, Bob from Philadelphia, this is the best shoe I ever bought in my life. You know, you're probably just as cynical about that. But on the other hand, you know, the Amazon reviews that you at least believe to be real or reviews on Airbnb or TripAdvisor, these are ones that at least we think are probably real from real people. And what that really is, is it's a view into somebody else's experience. And so if you look at these two things, how do you influence these two things as a brand? Not through your ads. It's through creating a great experience. And the good news is when you create a great experience, you're influencing both because in many ways they're the same thing. It's just a question of whether you're influencing the customer directly for having them experienced that experience or indirectly by other people experiencing that and then documenting their experience in a way that is believable to the new prospect. And so when you think about it that way, customer experience becomes, you know, hopefully my goal, my mission in the world is to help people realize how absolutely critical this is. And then the question is what to do about it. So that's a whole other topic. But anyway, I think that's the number one thing because many companies still view customer experience as a kind of a luxury, as a kind of a nice to have. You know, they'll say, well, sure, you know, we love our customers. Who's going to argue with that? Customer experience is important. Who's going to argue with that? But then when your chief marketing officer, or your head of product, or your chief customer uh, officer, or whoever it might be says, great. Well, I know you love the customer. Oh, yes, we love the customer. Great. I need $25 million to improve the website, create a new app, create a chatbot to provide our customers better service. Then they get an answer like, well, you know, we do love the customer. We really do. But that's a lot of money. What can you do for $300,000 to show the customer we love them? You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, are you going to put your money where your mouth is or is it just talk? And so you have to be able to show that it's not just a nice to have. It's not a moral thing. It is a business thing. Creating the right experience is the number one method. It's not the only thing, but it is the most highest leverage way to improve your business. And as we see, many of the most valuable companies today, whether it's Tesla or Apple or Amazon, are known for providing a great customer experience. And so you can see that correlation there as well. You bring up some really interesting points about that because as you're talking through this, I'm also thinking in my head, how do businesses take this very fundamental advice and do something with it? Because even right. too, in my mind, it's always like, these are very important things that we're talking about. Because even the whole theme of this podcast is about retention. But the thought is, after someone listens to this podcast, what do they do after that? Meaning, how do they go to the drawing board and just scrap everything and start from the beginning? But I'm curious to know your point of view on even what you said, the example of, do they actually put their money where their mouth is and do something about it? What are some questions that you think businesses, whether small or big, doesn't matter really, what questions do you think they should be asking themselves to figure out, okay, how do we deliver an experience that's actually building our brand, not just slapping it on because we have to fit the status quo of being customer focused? Yeah, well, absolutely. And one of the risks, if you do everything I described before, 
and you get everyone to agree, yes, okay, we will invest in customer experience, you still have the risk, the possibility to go spend $25 million and actually not improve the customer experience. You know, you can't just spend the money and it will automatically improve the customer experience. So then it's a question of, okay, how can we be as smart as possible about what to do that will have the maximum impact? So, you know, in the approach that we describe in the book, it's heavily rooted in research, different methods of research, whether that's looking at existing data about customer behavior, like site click data or purchase transaction behavior, things like that, customer interviews, customer observation, ethnography, surveys. So in the book, I talk about a lot of different techniques, but you started with really the right question, which is, what do we want to know? Before we start doing all of those things, we have to stop and say, well, what is the information that if we had it, we could really do a good job of figuring out what to do to create a better customer experience? The risk is that somebody has a great idea or what they believe to be a great idea, something they're passionate about. Ah, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create whatever, you know, we're going to carpet the stores or we're going to create a chatbot or, you know, augmented reality application. We're going to use blockchain, drones. That's what we need drones, you know. And by the way, those are all great technologies and any given situation may in fact be the answer, but if grabbed at randomly are much less likely to yield the desired results. And so to answer your question, what do we want to ask? Well, in the book, we talk about this idea of, well, the first thing you have to do is figure out your research questions. So it's going to depend a little bit situationally on if you're B2C or B2B or what kind of thing you're selling. But I think there's some basic questions we'd always like to understand. And I would start from what we talked about before about customer behavior. You start by identifying, these are the customer behaviors we want. We want people to come into the store. We want people to come to the website. We want people to put things into their cart. We want people to buy and check out. We want people to not return them. You know, we want people to post on social media positive things about us, et cetera. So we have this set of behaviors that we want. And that's probably not too hard to figure out. You kind of know what you want your customer to do typically. Well, then typically what you're going to find is that there are some customers that are engaging in the behaviors that you want. I mean, you're in real trouble if nobody is buying, right? If nobody is posting on social media. So somebody's out there doing what you want. And then there are other customers that are doing what you don't want them to do. For example, they come to your website, but they don't put anything into your cart. They bounce off your homepage, or they put things in their cart and they never check out, or they return products, or they complain, they post negative things on social media. And so I think there's many questions you could ask, but the first thing I like to always look at is, okay, the people that are actually doing what it is that we want them to do, who are those people and why are they doing the thing we want them to do? What is motivating them, inspiring them, prompting them to actually be a kind of a good case study? Why are they doing what we want? And then let's look at the other group, the people who aren't doing what we want them to do. What's holding them back? Why aren't they engaging in the behavior we want? And what are they doing instead? Are they buying a competitive product or are they just buying nothing when they're not posting a review? Are they dissatisfied or are they just not people who like to post things on social media or whatnot? Because that becomes the fertile ground for figuring out what to do. When all of a sudden you understand, okay, well, the people who do what we want are doing it for these reasons and the people who are doing what we don't want them to do. And by the way, some people do a combination, right? For example, someone does come to your website and does add something to your shopping cart, great, but then they don't check out. Okay, well, so you got them partway through the process. So what did you do right and what did you do wrong kind of thing? Because once you understand all of that, then it's amazing how quickly it becomes clear what to do to say, oh, well, if the reason why people are not completing the checkout process is because the terms and conditions pop up and they're scary and in legalese and nobody understands them, 
well, gee, what can we do about that? I mean, it's not too hard about let's rewrite them or let's see if we even need them. You know, if the reason people are complaining about your product is because, you know, the packaging slices their finger open when they try to open the package, you know, like some products do. Okay, well, once you understand the problem, it's a lot easier to figure out. And sometimes it's not hard at all to figure out what to do about it. Now, sometimes it is hard to figure out what to do about it. And you have to brainstorm and come up with different ideas and then test them to see whether they really solve the problem. But I think the bottom line is there's a lot of questions you could ask, but you know, why do people come to the website? Why do they buy? Why do they not buy? What makes them satisfied? What makes them dissatisfied? These are the basic questions. And it's amazing how often the you know executives or whoever's responsible for making decisions about what to invest in, don't really know the answers to those questions. And that's why research and the right kinds of research is so essential. At some companies, even, there's these sort of apocryphal beliefs. Oh, well, what makes our customers happy is X, or the reason people don't buy from us is Y. And everyone sort of repeats these things as if, of course, they're gospel and they must be true. And sometimes they are true. But one of the things we always like to do when we go in is ask questions initially of the business. Well, why do you think people are buying or are not buying or are doing these different things? And then the question is, well, what makes you say that? On what basis do you hold this belief? And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, because I have this report that we just ran of 10,000 customer feedback comments and we've analyzed it and cross-tabulated and we know the reasons, in which case, fantastic, that's wonderful. Or it's because, well, I don't know, when I was hired, Eight years ago, that's what my boss told me. He's no longer here. Actually, he got fired. But anyway, he told me that. So I guess it must be true. And it's like, well, you know, maybe we should go out and do some research. Put in the pieces together there. <laughs> uh, and by the way, maybe it was true then, you know, but the world has changed a lot, you know, or maybe it was never true. In any case, this is the foundation, I think, of all great customer experience is really understanding the customer. And there's a lot of great techniques to do that. And there's a lot of sort of knowledge about how to do it right and how to make sure you get the accurate gauge of your customer. And uh, that's why I take such a big portion of the book to talk about it. And by the way, it's super fun. I mean, at least it's fun for me. To me, it's like a detective puzzle, you know, to really understand, you know, I think to really get curious about customers and understand what they do and why they do it. I find that just like you said, like a detective finding the pieces to the puzzle, because even too, when I'm working with game ball clients, this is what I talk with them about because we're helping them set up their programs and figuring out their retention strategy. But really, at the end of the day, it comes down to customer behavior because if you're rewarding someone or trying to push an action that you want them to be completing, it really comes down to customer behavior. And the thing is, every customer acts differently. And that's actually the interesting, unique thing about it. And so we have the ability to be personalized and be able to look at that, but it really starts with that customer information. So I think that's really interesting and also very actionable as well, because I think it can be hard sometimes to figure out where to start, where to go next, or how to break it down into that. So you laid it out very clearly, which I think a lot of listeners will definitely appreciate. But I'm curious to know if you have an example from one of your from clients, if you've delivered a project or a client of yours that has done this really well, a nice example would be cool to hear about. Sure. Well, I mean, gosh, there's so many. I mean, let's take Avis Quick Pass. So we worked for several years on implementing a whole bunch of innovations to the process of picking up your rental car and getting off the lot. And we know that what people care most about is getting it done quickly. How can I have confidence that my car is going to be there when I get there? I haven't flown to Los Angeles to hang out in the rental car lot and <laughs> the line. You know, I want to get wherever I'm going. So how can we get people out as quickly as possible? So a combination of technologies that operate on the phone that allow you to, for example, know when the bus is coming so you don't have to wait out in the cold. Not a problem so much in Los Angeles, but let's say Chicago. 
and then the ability to see what specific car you've been assigned before you get to the lot so that if that's not the car you want, it's not, not your favorite color or whatever, you can swap it out on the app so that by the time you get to the lot, you know the space number of the car that you actually do want to be in. And then the ability to even simply get off the lot without having to wait in a line because now there's a QR code on your phone. You can go through an unattended line to just get off the lot quickly and, and not have to wait in a line of cars, not have to wait in a line at the counter, not have to wait in a line of cars. So a lot of different components to something like that to figure out how do I solve this part of the problem and this part of the problem, this part of the problem. And like so many of these types of projects, it's all this work. And when you're done, it seems like this very simple thing. Oh, well, the end result is you just go get in your car and you drive away. You know, but, you know, huge impact on the customer compared to what can be a hellish experience at some other rental car companies where, you know, it can take you an hour or more to get out of the airport with your car because of the paperwork you have to fill out or the lines you have to wait in and all these kinds of things. So that's one example. And actually, you know, it's it's sort of the same story over and over, you know, like take the work we've done with ADP. We went out and studied people doing payroll to understand, well, how is that for them? You know, we're studying like the person who's responsible for running payroll at a company. And so we've worked on a number of ADP's products and they range from products that are geared for very small businesses to other products. Obviously the payroll system that a 10,000 person company uses is not the same as a small bakery that has six employees. <laughs> they have different products, as you'd imagine. I mean, it's such a different process. So the one that I was using example before, Run, that's the one for the smallest companies, which is their biggest product because of course there's a lot more small companies than there are huge companies. So we came to understand who are these people who are running payroll? And the answer, first of all, is they're not HR people, mostly. They're not payroll people. They're entrepreneurs. It's the guy who runs the hardware store. It's the plumber who has to pay his two assistants. And they're often not even in one location. You know, They're on the road. They're running around sometimes. And they need to focus first and foremost. They have a million things to deal with. And running payroll is like not highly value added to them in some ways, You know, compared to, say, spending time with a customer, making a new sale, things like that. But at the same time, they're worried. They want to make sure that they don't screw something up because for one thing, their employees are really important. And if they make a mistake and the person gets the wrong amount of money, that's going to be bad. And also they don't want to screw something up that's going to cause them to get in trouble with the government because payroll involves all kinds of withholdings and things like that. So, so just understanding their whole mindset and landscape, then you look at the product you have now and you say, okay, well, where are we succeeding and meeting all those needs? And where are we not? And how do you therefore understand where the biggest points of pain and friction are? And every experience has points of pain and friction. You know, I make that point sometimes when I do speaking and I'll say, you know, how many people love the Amazon experience? And of course, almost everybody raises their hands. And I say, how many people have had a real sticking point or a problem or a point of pain with Amazon in the last few months? And almost everyone raises their hand because nobody's perfect. No experience yeah. is perfect. There's always another opportunity to improve something else. So, you know, like with ADP or anybody else, it's about going in and finding those opportunities. And to me, those opportunities are good news because, you know, as I said at the beginning, what I've done my whole career is how can they improve their business through digital? So the nightmare scenario is if we ever go into a business and we analyze the whole customer experience and there's nothing wrong, there's no points of pain, there's no points of friction, the entire experience is perfect. It's like, well, I'm sorry, there's really no opportunity to improve. I hope you're happy with the profitability and customer satisfaction you have now because it's never going up. There's nothing you're doing wrong, you know? But of course, that hasn't happened yet, right? Yes. And whereas on the flip side, every problem that we find is like, well, your customers are doing business today with you despite these problems, despite mm -hmm. these points of pain and friction. 
Imagine what would happen if we can solve some more of them. We'll probably never get to perfect, but as we keep chipping away at them, we keep increasing satisfaction, increasing loyalty, potentially more effective upselling or whatever other financial benefits there are. And so that's the good news. That's the fun part of the detective work is figuring out where those opportunities are to make it even better. Yeah, no, I really like that. And there's one more question I want to know before I get to the lightning round. I just was hoping that you might touch a little bit on the love formula because I was really curious to know more about that because I feel like it's going to tie into these examples that you just gave and understanding like the key components of these experiences because it's so true trying to understand everything about it and figure out the next step as to what you should do afterwards. So I was wondering if you could just briefly touch on the love formula because the name itself is intriguing. So I just wanted to know more about it. Sure, sure. Well, so one of the things that we've learned is that one of the most valuable assets that a company can have are customers that have a strong emotional connection to the brand. An idea that some people call loyalty, but I think the word loyalty has kind of gotten watered down and confused over the years because so many companies create loyalty programs, which generally means some kind of a points system where you get rewarded for certain behaviors, purchases, things like that. And while there's nothing wrong with creating programs like that, they don't necessarily create an emotional connection. You know, if you think about loyalty as that thing that makes somebody on the battlefield not leave their buddy behind, or the loyalty you have towards your friends or family and you'd never leave them. Well, you know, I, I mean, you can have been for years with, you know, American Express and gotten points from their loyalty program for 20 years. If Chase comes along with a different credit card that's going to give you twice as many points, you're probably like, hey, that's better. So that's not really loyalty at all. You know, it's bribery. <laughs> or maybe put in a more kind way, a kind of discounting, right? And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a different thing. You know, so we don't call it loyalty. So I call it love. And of course, there's lots of different types of love. You know, I love my wife and I love my Ford Mustang, but not in exactly <laughs> the same way. You know, when people say they love Starbucks, that's the kind of love we're talking about, you know? And someone says, do you want to marry Starbucks? It's like, okay, no, that's not what we mean. But nevertheless, consumers understand this idea that there are some brands that they truly love. And there are some brands that get a lot more love from customers than most, whether that's Ben and Jerry's mm -hmm. or Disney or Apple or Harley Davidson, right? Or Rolex. And every one of those, you know, if you say how many people love Apple and then how many people love Dell, of course, it's night and day. Right. Yep. So uh, how many people love Ben and Jerry's versus how many people love, you know, Bressler's ice cream or something. So there's some companies, some brands that have been able to get that level of love. And we've done all kinds of analysis in the financials that show that it generally has a very positive impact on customer retention, on price sensitivity, meaning customers are less price sensitive. We all know that we're going to pay more for our Mac than we're going to pay for go get a, you know, a Hewlett Packard computer or whatnot. So that's super valuable is that kind of emotional connection. And so in the book, we dive into the question of how do you achieve that? How do you inspire customer love? And sometimes it feels like one of those things like, well, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, how can you cause love? You know, it's like, it's this metaphysical thing. But what we try to do is something which, you know, I'll admit is maybe a little bit non-romantic, but which is to reverse engineer love or at least this kind of brand love and say, well, what is it that causes consumers to have that feeling of love towards a brand? And it's really three basic things. And it's a pyramid because you really have to have all three things to really inspire the love. The first level of the pyramid, if you will, is to very consistently meet your customer's needs. If you're not very consistently meeting their needs, then no matter what else you do, you're not going to be able to achieve love. And, you know, think about people in your life. You know, it's pretty hard to have consistent love for somebody who doesn't meet 
any of your needs. Or it doesn't mean you have to meet every need all the time, but just very consistently meet, you know, like most of their needs, at least within the domain that your brand exists, right? I mean, if you're Harley Davidson, but your customer really needs help with their income tax return, it doesn't mean you need to do that, of course, <laughs> but within the domain of the relationship. And then the second level is to occasionally or periodically do things that go above and beyond, that surprise the customer in positive ways and do something extra and unexpected. And then the third is to stand for something that the customer believes in or agrees with. So almost like aligning yourself with the brand, meaning if you're going to get to that point by aligning on some point, then you've reached some sort of love for that brand because you're kind of putting your name stamp on there. Yeah. And you know, part of the issue with loving a brand is we shouldn't love brands. If you think about human DNA and the way our brains are programmed, it was done long before companies and brands existed. You know, we're living on DNA that predated the modern sort of civilization. So why do people love brands? I mean, love as a behavior, as a characteristic of humans must have some survival value because that's everything about the way we behave has some survival value. And so what's the survival value of love? Well, you know, it's to connect you with people, right? Because, you know, in primitive times, being in tribes and being connected to people where you were committed to them and they were committed to you made it less likely that you were going to wind up starving or being eaten by a bear or something. So that's the origin of the idea of the human behavior of love. And so it's sort of a hack that we can get people to love brands. But one of the things that is necessary for people to love brands is for that brand to have a certain degree of humanity. You know, you might really like Citibank. There's cash machines everywhere, you know, and they process your whatever quickly and the bill is easy to read and all that. And that's them meeting your needs, which is great. But it's pretty hard to love Citibank if it feels like this big inhuman machine, even if it's a really efficient, helpful, useful machine. But a brand like Ben & Jerry's that feels like it stands for something, feels like it has more humanity. And well, you don't love every human you meet, of course. As I say, that's why it's a pyramid. Humanity in and of itself is not enough to inspire love. There's plenty of humans that I don't love. But when you combine these components together, you do seem human. And one way of seeming human is to really stand for something. And that can be a lot of different types of things. You know, Nike obviously has taken a lot of stands that are, again, one might say, kind of left wing, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter. Then you have brands like Chick-fil-A that have sort of done the opposite, you know, anti-gay marriage or whatever their positions have been. But then you have other brands who, what they stand for isn't a, a political statement, but something else, like a brand like Apple or Disney, who aren't particularly, say, Republican or Democrat, but that stand for something nevertheless. Whereas Dell and Paramount Pictures, two competitors of Apple and Disney, what does Paramount Pictures stand for? I mean, I don't know, making movies and selling <laughs> tickets, I guess. You know. Yeah. So anyway, so that's it. And I guess we're out of time. There's more in the book. And if anyone's interested in the book, by the way, there's a website for the book at winningdigitalcustomers.com. You can actually download the first chapter for free. And obviously, you can buy the book wherever you buy books, Amazon or Apple Books and all those types of places. And there's an audio book also. I always am happy to give as much as I can, but I can never cover everything in a, in a podcast episode. <laughs> and I'm just going to end on one really quick question, just a one word answer. The question is, what's one company that you would love to work with? UPS. Why is that? I guess I asked for one word answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because, because I'll tell you why. Number one, they're a company that's loved by many people. Interesting. Because of their drivers, because of the human interaction that they deliver to people when they deliver packages. And at the same time, they're a company 
that is not strong in terms of their customer-facing digital capabilities. And so this is a company that I think has a brand that really deserves and has historically generated love, but isn't changing with the times fast enough. One of my favorite things to do is work with great brands that simply need help to make sure that they're doing something that's very, very tough, which is transforming at the speed of the world today. Maybe I'll I'll end with this quote that I always love to quote from Jack Welsh, the kind of legendary GE, General Electric CEO, who said back in the 1980s that when the speed of change on the outside of a company exceeds the speed of change on the inside, the end is near. And one of the challenges companies are faced with today is that the world is changing so fast. Customers are changing so fast. And COVID has only just accelerated that. And companies have to sort of keep up or perish. And I'm not saying UPS is about to perish. UPS has a lot of very smart things to be a great partner to merchants in the digital world and make sure that they were one of the primary, one of the key delivery channels for all the things we order via e-commerce. So that's why I want to work with them because I think they have such great strengths. But I also see where they could use help from someone. And I think we're the perfect ones to help. So if anyone's listening from UPS, they'll become a client. Give me a call. <laughs> right. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be a great story? But that's how, you know, we get our next client with UPS. Yeah. My entire job would be made if that was the case. That'd be really cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, Howard. It was lovely to have you on the show. Likewise. Retain the Customer Retention Podcast is brought to you by Gameball. To find out how you can turn visitors and occasional buyers into loyal, lifetime customers, head to Gameball.co. Make sure to subscribe to Retain the Customer Retention Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.